from 2035, the government has said, we're going to do away with gas. We're going to do away with all fossil fuel from the national grid. And it's going to be all zero carbon energy. And nobody has explained to me what we are going to do then when the wind isn't blowing, the sun isn't shining. We had a cold December, very still calm weather. And of course, in December, you're generating very, very little solar energy. The government's only strategy seems to be more solar, more wind, more solar, more wind. You know, what happens in future? Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Ross Clark. Ross, welcome to the show. Hi. So, uh, Ross, I want to talk to you about net zero and climate change, the environmental movement, all those interesting, fascinating topics. Hooked off your brilliant new book, Not Zero, How an Irrational Target Will Impoverish You, Help China, and Won't Even Save the Planet. I always love it when a book title says everything, and then you have to dig in to get all the details. Um, So I guess the best way for us to kick off in a discussion about net zero and and what it really means is to say what net zero is. So can you just kick us off by saying what you understand the net zero policy to be? What does it force us to do or what does it suggest we need to do in order to save ourselves from climate change? Well, what the government has done is put itself under, it's not just a target, it is a legal commitment. So um, to reach net zero um, emissions by 2050, and what that means, it's not just carbon emissions, it's greenhouse gas emissions, which are slightly different, includes things like methane. Um, And um, what the sort of net bit means is that, um, you know, if, if we are still emitting some form of carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases, by 2050, we have to make up for that by through what are called negative emissions, carbon, removing carbon from the air, which is, you know, a technology which is possible, but it's extremely expensive and, um, you know, it's not not fully developed. Um, But, um, you know, the more you look into it, the more you realise how sort of fantastically expensive this could be. And um, it requires multiple technological breakthroughs in all sorts of areas, not just energy. People get sort of, um, you know, obsessed with energy on this, but things like steel, cement industries, making um, chemicals, making fertilizers, plastics industries, all those things have what they call process emissions, whereby it's not just the energy consumed, but actually the chemical process releases large amounts of carbon dioxide. And it is incredibly difficult to come up with um, solutions to remove that. There are potential technology, but they're all like three or four times more expensive than what we use already. And the, the other point to make is that when the government says net zero, it's referring to only to what are called territorial carbon emissions. Those are carbon emissions physically spewed out within Britain it excludes aviation, it excludes shipping, but more importantly, it excludes um, carbon emissions emitted elsewhere in the world in the name of um, manufacturing goods and producing food for British consumers. And, and what that means is it gives the government this sort of perverse incentive to export our manufacturing industry or what remains of our manufacturing industry, our food production, uh, and so on. Um, just to reach this um, arbitrary target. Um, because, you know, if, if you move your steel industry to India, say, um, then, you know, those, the accounts towards India's territorial emissions, it, it's subtracted from Britain's territorial emissions. So, you know, we're already, already seeing, I mean, you, you look at BASF, the German industrial giant a few weeks ago, announced that it was going to um, not invest any more in Europe because of net zero and the high energy costs, and it's building a £10 billion factory in China instead. Um, So, you know, that's a European jobs, European wealth, just directly exported to China as a result of net zero commitments. Yeah, I, I, I want to get into that uh, a bit later on, the, the question of Western countries increasingly outsourcing 
the dirty work, as as some would see it, to uh, countries like China, countries like India, um, and, and what that represents. But but just to stick with the net zero idea to begin with, it's one of those strange ideologies that has just become a buzzword. It's just seen as an instantly positive buzz phrase, net zero. It's supposed to give you a warm feeling. We're all supposed to be committed to it. I think people would be pretty shocked to hear someone like you or anyone else say, listen, this might not be such a good idea. It's one of those phrases that just rolls off the political tongue as something that it is admirable for a government to commit itself to. But in your book and in your writings around this issue, you raise numerous important questions. Firstly, as you've just said there, it will be an incredibly expensive endeavour. It will hamper uh, Britain's ability to produce things domestically, to create those kinds of jobs, to do things uh, within its own territory as it sees fit. And it also, this is one thing I think is quite striking, it also allows other people to hold the government hostage. So now that we've made it a legal stipulation that Britain will re- achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050, it's it's a legal demand on our, our government makes of itself. That means that groups can sue the government if they think it's going off track, if it's not going to reach the target that it promised it would reach. So my question for you is, why would a government do this to itself? So in, in the British context, the situation is largely that we, the government committed itself to decarbonizing the economy a fairly long time ago. But what Theresa May did during her short-lived, pretty disastrous premiership, she attached the legal stipulation that we would achieve net zero by 2050. And it gives rise to all these problems. Lots of spending, lots of confusion as to how this will be achieved, and an inability of the government to do what it might need to do in its own country. Why would a government do something like that to itself and hamper itself in that way? Well, it is very puzzling. And as you say, I mean, not only can environmental groups sue the government over this, they already are. Mm. There's already numerous um, uh, you know, cases going through the courts where um, environmental groups are taking government to court saying this development or that development, this policy or that policy is not consistent um, with your net zero commitment by 2050. And it is therefore illegal. And they've started to win as well. The um, Over the uh, third runway at Heathrow, the, um, it was later overturned by the um, Supreme Court, but the Court of Appeal ruled that um, you know there should be no third runway at Heathrow because you know it was inconsistent with the 2050 target. And again, last July, um, a group, um, you know, one of these crowdfunded legal groups, um, won a, an action saying the the government's net zero strategy was not good enough. It was not um, consistent with its obligations, the obligations it put on itself, and the government, as a result, is having to rewrite its strategy. Um, so and as closer we get to that target, the more often these groups will win because, um, you know, if you've said you're going to eliminate all carbon emissions by 2050, well, then, I mean, how could an international airport possibly be consistent with those aims? Um, and it was, you know, on the government as well, it's also rebounding on private companies. Um, Shell lost an action in the Netherlands in 2021. Um, the, the Netherlands court ruled that, um, you know, the company had not got a, a, you know, a strategy for meeting the Netherlands net zero targets. And, um, you know, again, activists are going to go for private companies more and more. And they're going to push them abroad. You know, if you're an oil or gas company, you know, why stay in Britain and put up with this? I mean, the first reaction of um, Shell, by the way, which, you know, used to have a dual listing in UK and the Netherlands, was to end its Netherlands listing, become a UK-only company. Mm. And we get more and more um, oil and gas companies. They're just selling off their a lot of their oil and gas um, interest because you know it's just too much of a liability because you know they get sued and um, you know those uh, those parts of the industries are sort of going abroad and you know Shell at the same time they're providing my broadband for me I mean they, they just sort of have to diversify into other industries so they can sort of hit the targets that are, are put upon them. 
Yeah, and it's it's remarkable how it's almost everything that the government says it needs to do now in terms of, for example, the Whitehaven coal station that um, is is being planned. Uh, instantly, that was uh, called into question on the basis of the net zero uh, commitments. And you can see a situation where everything the government commits itself to do in terms of building something new, especially something new, which includes emissions, whether in the building of it or in the uh, uh, the production of it over subsequent decades, everything is just instantly called into question by campaigners. And the government has clearly made a huge rod for its own back by committing the country to net zero emissions by 2050. Uh, I wanted to ask you specifically about the expense of it and how much this will cost, because some of the stuff you've written in relation to the cost is really quite shocking. So there was an estimation from the Climate Change Committee, which advises the government on um, what it needs to do to address the climate change problem. Uh, there was a advice from them that it would co- net zero would cost around fifty billion a year um, between twenty thirty and, and twenty fifty. And you've pointed out that. Just to put that into perspective, when the government denied nurses a 3% pay rise uh, a year or so ago, that saved the government £300 million. Uh, and that is what net zero would cost in two days if this uh, piece of advice is accurate, that it will be £50 billion a year. So it's an incredible expense, isn't it, in terms of how much it will cost. Could, could you just outline what those costs entail? And whether you think people understand just how expensive the net zero project is going to be? Yeah. Well, first, I think it's important to point out that was uh, that was an estimate by the government's climate change committee, um, one trillion pound between now and twenty fifty. Um, National Grid looked into it just at the um, the cost of decarbonising the grid and came up with a figure of three trillion pound investment. Um, then the Treasury was pressed and pressed, you know, to come up with its own estimation. It said it couldn't. There's just too many unknowns. Nobody knows how much it would cost um, to reach net zero, nor how we could do it. Um, because, you know, as I was saying, that there are so many different um, areas that involve carbon emissions that um, the technologies don't exist. And, you know, the Climate Change Committee knew this at the same time they came up with this figure in um, 2019. And MPs just sort of swallowed it whole and thought, oh, that doesn't sound too much, and just sort of nodded the whole thing through without realising it was a complete bogus figure. But, I mean, just to give a few examples of where the costs will fall upon ordinary people, um, you know, part of the... um, but the Climate Change Committee has um, advised is that all homes should have a energy performance certificate rating of C or above um, by 2035. And Chris Skidmore's latest report brings says that should be brought forward to 2033. You know, if you're, say, on the bottom rung of the housing ladder, you own a Victorian two up, two down in Manchester or something and worth... Uh, you know, £50,000, the house might be worth £50,000. It could cost another £30,000 to get that up to a good energy rating because, um, you know, if you've got old home with solid walls and gas boiler and this sort of thing, you know, it's it's known that to in- insulate solid walls, the um, government's own energy quango says, you know, £10,000 upwards, the heat pump, that's another £10,000. And, you know, those are costs which will fall upon ordinary people. If they don't pay them, they won't be able to sell their house. They'll, you know, they'll be trapped. You can't sell your house. You can't afford the um, the improvements. Um, you know, again, a look at electric cars. You know, people go saying electric cars are cheaper to run than um petrol and diesel cars. Well, no, they're not, because they cost half as much again to buy as the petrol or diesel um, equivalent. And um, although the running costs um, to the consumer at the moment might be um, fairly similar, um, you know, the per mile cost of electricity and the per mile cost of petrol, but that ignores something very important that 
60% of you know what you pay for a liter of petrol is tax whereas you know you spend charge your car up at home you're only paying 5% vat on the electricity and there's no way that the government is going to let 28 billion pound of road and fuel duty just go out the window when we you know transfer to uh, electric cars so that that's an extra cost that's coming. The um, you know, the the government will have to switch to some kind of road pricing just to preserve its uh, its road income, and you know, so eventually the cost of running electric car will be far more than a petrol or diesel one. It becomes hard to imagine. You you we just cannot switch to electric cars without pushing a lot of people off the road. Basically, you raise the issue of. Electricity there. I really agree with you on electric cars. And uh, there's a, such a kind of Panglossian view of electric cars coming in. The environment will be saved. It will be cheaper for people, et cetera, et cetera. And it, that doesn't stack up when you look into it in a bit more detail, which you have done. But you raise the issue of electricity. We will need a lot of electricity, uh, not only for all these electric cars we're supposedly going to have, but for society in general. And if there were to be this march towards net zero, this restriction on what can be produced and done territorially within the United Kingdom itself, um, this push for greater use of renewables, um, this problematization of nuclear power, which we're seeing all the time, uh, coal-fired stations, of course, are seen as a big no-no, although we might might get one soon. Um, given all that, where is the electricity going to come from? How is this stuff going to be made and maintained if alongside seeing the use of electric cars and other electric products as, as the solution, we're also continually downsizing the nation's ability to produce the energy one might need for electricity and other things? What we're doing at the moment, I mean, Prince has actually been very successful at switching away from coal, which, you know, has um, reduced carbon emissions by a very significant amount. Mm. You know, put it very broadly, a decade ago, we were using 40% gas, 40% coal and 20% nuclear and a few other things. Now we're using um, 40% gas, 40% renewables, solar and wind. Um, and that sort of works reasonably well. Um, it's not the, you know, we use wind and solar when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing. And then when it's not, we switch on the gas. That's not the most efficient way of using gas, by the way, but it does keep the lights on. But from 2035, the government has said, we're going to do away with gas. We're going to do away with all fossil fuel from the national grid, and it's going to be all zero carbon energy. And nobody has explained to me what we are going to do then when the wind isn't blowing, the sun isn't shining. Like last month in December, we had a cold December, very still calm weather. And of course, in December, you're generating very, very little solar energy. Um, you know, what happens in future? And the government's only strategy seems to be more solar, more wind, more solar, more wind. And, um, you know, companies, are, there's a lot of investment in wind and solar because it, it makes a lot of sense for, a, um, you know, a pension fund or something which wants very reliable income because um, if you invest in wind and solar, the government will offer you a fixed contract, fixed prices for next 15 years, very reliable, very safe form of income. And at the same time, the government's of trying to solve this problem of intermittency by what it calls a capacity market, where it says, we'll also auction, we'll, we'll have auctions of people who can provide electricity at short notice. Um, and the idea was that this was going to generate all kinds of bright ideas of um, hydrogen and um, battery storage and so on. And we, we've had a few battery installations, but, you know, Capital just does not want to invest in energy storage at the moment. Um, you know, all these capacity auctions keep being won by the the gas companies because it's just so much cheaper to do that, in, in spite of um, elevated um, gas prices. And 
I'm looking through some figures today. The cost of storing energy via hydrogen, the cost of generating electricity from um, wind and solar, around about sort of $50 a megawatt hour to store that energy, if you need then to store it. If you do it by um, hydrogen, that will come out at about $200 per megawatt hour. And if you do it by battery, it'll be over $300 per megawatt hour. So you're thinking to store energy at the moment under current technology costs about between four and six times as much as it costs to generate the electricity in the first place. Mm. And you think, well, look at the sums there. Well, you know, every time the sun goes in and the wind stops blowing, consumers are going to be facing eye-watering electricity bills. And of course, it's a reason why government's been so keen to get our smart meters is so that they can vary the price throughout the day and we'll have end up what's you know uber style surge pricing the sun goes in you know suddenly you're, you're paying four or five times as much for your electricity and um but you know also as, it, as you were pointing out the um the total generation capacity of britain is not going up mm. You know, we're going to have electric cars. We've been told our heating's going to have to be electric. And yet there's actually a downward trend in the overall amount of generation capacity because we closed all the coal and we haven't sort of quite replaced it with wind and solar. And on some days we're importing 15 20% of our energy, which, you know, we never have done in the past. So, you know, that's that's another sort of source of, uh, you know, adding to the cost and the, against the balance of payments of Britain is going to be our reliance on overseas energy if we um, persist with this sort of, um, uh, you know, rather renewables-heavy national grid. If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. So I want to um, ask you precisely about that issue, which I find fascinating, which is the increasing reliance on forms of energy from overseas. And I think this is interesting from a number of perspectives. Firstly, there is this drive in Western countries to be so eco-virtuous that we don't do any of the dirty stuff ourselves, but we seem pretty happy for it to be done in other nations on our behalf, whether we're outsourcing certain forms of production to countries like India or importing coal from other countries. So the UK still imports uh, tens of thousands of tons of coal. Um, and in fact, in 2022, the third quarter of 2022, there was a big spike in the amount of coal we were importing in comparison with the same time period in 2021, uh, because we need it. We need that stuff to keep the lights on. Uh, we also know, of course, about Germany's reliance on Russian gas and how that's all been brought to the political for uh, as a consequence of the war in Ukraine, which has raised huge questions for Germany about how it generates energy, whether it should be so reliant on foreign sources or whether it should focus on domestically generating its uh, greater amounts of its own energy. What do you think that outsourcing or that, um, that reliance on other countries tells us? Firstly, about the net zero mission more broadly, kind of keeping our own hands clean, but not worrying too much about other, the hands of other nations. But also, isn't it possible there'll be a breaking point at some point, and arguably we're reaching it now, where uh, because of events in Ukraine, where it becomes clear that relying on other countries for your energy is 
a quite dangerous thing geopolitically. Well, that's the biggest lesson to have come out of the uh, Ukrainian invasion. And yeah, I mean, this is what the Cumbrian coal mine is the crux of that issue because um, the steel industry needs coal. You cannot produce steel at the moment in commercial quantities without using coal. Um, It's a reducing agent to remove the oxygen from the um, iron oxide, basically, um, to leave the pure iron. Um, Now, the question comes down to, well, do you want to use British coal or do we want to import coal? Now, from the point of view of the Earth's climate, it doesn't make a lot of difference, does it? I mean, if you're burning a certain amount of coal to produce a certain amount of steel, it doesn't really matter where the coal comes from. It's slightly lower emissions, though, if you're producing the coal close to where the steel is being produced. Um, But if we have a coal mine in Britain producing coal for British coal plants, then that's going on our territorial emissions. If, on the other hand, we say, well, we won't open this coal mine, we'll... um, you know, we'll be good to the climate, goody goodies. Um, we won't have any coal in Britain. Um, and then maybe, well, the steel industry won't hang around. Maybe the steel industry will go and leave us, go to India, China. And then it's off our books. All that carbon emissions are off our books. So, you know, purely from the British point of view, we've saved carbon emissions. We've cut carbon emissions. We can sort of, you know, earn our global brownie points but of course the the world is no better off it's just we've simply transferred the emissions from one part of the world to another and that's going to go on in many other industries and we're you know talking about importing electricity i mean you can look up you look on the web in an instant find out what we're what sort of electricity we're producing at the moment um and you know the government's always of you know renewables of um reached a peak for the first time we're generating sort of 70 percent of our electricity from um, wind power but then you look in greater detail and you say well hang on 20 percent of our electricity is being imported and they say look well so much is coming from the netherlands and belgium then you look up well how do the netherlands and belgium generate their electricity and they've still got coal plants so (laughs) but that is not being counted on UK carbon emissions. So, you know, it's it's just completely perverse, Um, you know, like so many government targets, it can have these completely perverse results like that. Yeah, I mean, it is extraordinary. Like, the environmental fiddling of the book seems to be taking place on a global scale at the moment so that everyone can absolve themselves of responsibility for doing things that are apparently very bad. Um. Okay, so this policy is, as you've outlined, is going to be very expensive, is going to hit the pockets of the ordinary British person, the ordinary British household. We're not even sure how to achieve net zero, what that will entail. And also, we're still using coal, we're still importing those things, we're still using so-called dirty fuels, because you have to, there, there comes a point when you have to create enough energy to to be able to to keep the lights on in the country. So, Let's talk about why a country like Britain would do things like this that strike us as quite crazy and and possibly quite uh, self-destructive. So I want to dig down into the ideology of climate change, which is obviously the motor for the net zero um, ambitions. You talk in your book, I think you actually strike this balance very well between, on the one hand, recognising that the planet is getting warmer, climate change is taking place. But on the other hand, calling into question, as you refer to it, the climate hyperbole that we hear all the time, not only from eco-activists, but also from government officials in the mainstream media and so on, which says that the world is really almost on fire. Things are incredibly bad. An apocalypse could well be around the corner unless we drastically change our behavior to an extraordinary degree. So just talk a little bit about the tension between those two things. On the one hand, yes, climate change is occurring. But on the other hand, what climate change has come to mean in sections of the public consciousness, which is that this is almost the end of the world, uh, that cannot be stacked up, can it, by anything that remotely resembles a scientific fact? 
No, sort of paranoia feeds on itself and sort of everybody seems to, you know, activists will come up with a, you know, more exaggerated thing every time. We, we've got this sort of um, habit now, which is with many reporters, with many um, politicians and automatically blaming any kind of adverse weather yeah. event on man-made climate change, as if we didn't have storms, if we didn't have floods, if we never had heat waves before um, climate change. Now, the, the, the sort of real side of it, to try and sort of separate out the, uh, you know, the fact from the, the fiction, global temperatures are rising by about sort of 0.1 Celsius a decade. Um, that shows up in many data sets. You know, you should accept that data. Um, the world's getting slightly wetter, warmer air, holds more moisture, overall rainfall increases. Um, we were seeing more high temperature extremes, you know, like last year's heat wave in Britain probably wouldn't have occurred 50 years ago. 40 degrees was unknown in Britain until last summer. Um, but then, you know, to balance against that, Britain's seeing fewer cold extremes. The world is seeing fewer cold extremes. And, um, you know, we keep hearing figures for sort of numbers of people who were killed by last year's heat wave. You've got to balance that against the people who aren't dying because there are fewer cold extremes. Um, there was a study by the University of Monash um, in Australia, which, you know, assessed worldwide, globally, um, you know, the the balance of um, deaths from the heat and cold. And it came up with this figure that around the world, five million people a year die partly as a function of um, extreme temperatures. And I've seen this quoted by um, John Kerry, of all people, US climate envoy, you know, supposedly a serious person with a you know, lot of influence. I was at a public lecture the other week he was giving and he said, five million people are being killed by the heat because of choices we make. You know, that sounds absolutely awful, doesn't it? You know, we're warming up the planet. We're killing five million people a year. But that figure actually comes from the University of Monash study in Australia. And what it actually says is that um, nine-tenths of those deaths from extreme temperatures are from extreme cold temperatures. Only 10%, fewer than 10%, are from extreme high temperatures. Mm. And furthermore, as the um, slight upward trend in the high temperature deaths, but there's a bigger downward trend in the cold temperature deaths. And it even holds for Africa. You know, Africa sees 10 times as many deaths from cold weather as it sees from hot weather. And yeah, you know, we don't talk about that. We just talk about the. Um, you know, the extreme heat. Again, you know, storms, the number of times I read that we're going to face more storms as a result of climate change, it simply is not true. If you look at the the Royal Meteorological Society and the Met Office, they publish an annual state of the climate report, and it shows a clear downward trend in the occurrence of extreme wind speeds in Britain. We're seeing fewer storms. That's backed up by um, several studies quoted in the IPCC report, fewer storms up to about latitude of 60 degrees north, which is the Shetland Islands. Below that, you know, the, the, the world is becoming less stormy. Um, yeah, we never hear that. Mm. Another study, um, you know, the, the data on extreme rainfall is not that good, and on sort of flooding is not that good. Um but the best we have is a study that is quoted in the IPCC report, which looked at the maximum flood flow in um, 2,000 rivers throughout the world between 1961 and 2005. And it came to the conclusion that in 7% of rivers, there was increased flood risk. In 11% of rivers, decreased flood risk. And in the rest, there was no real change. Um, so yeah, maybe you can find bits of the world which are flooding more as a result of higher temperatures. But, you know, does that sound like a climate cataclysm, holocaust or whatever word is, you know, in latest in fashion? I mean, it's outrageous the way 
the um, you know the genuine science gets twisted by activists and uh, also by many reporters. Sadly, I completely agree. It is outrageous, and I think that point you make about the the partial concern they have, where on the one hand they will go crazy whenever there's hot weather or whenever it can be demonstrated that people suffered as a consequence of a spike in hot weather. They will really dramatize that, um, propagandize around it, put it onto the front pages, talk about a heat apocalypse, which is what we heard last summer when there was a heat wave in the UK and other parts of Europe. People were using the actual word apocalypse to describe that. But then the well-known, well-established fact that severe cold weather is more dangerous for people, particularly for vulnerable people and elderly people, is rarely talked about in the same way. So we know that every winter in European countries, elderly people in particular, die as a consequence of very cold weather. And that doesn't have the same drama surrounding it as episodes of hot weather or sudden storms do uh, in the way in which people talk about them. And I do find this... um, dramatization of weather very interesting so we had the heat apocalypse as it was described last summer there were the floods in germany a couple of years ago which were pretty deadly and which were instantly uh, blamed on on climate change and then um, some experts called that into question in the week in which you and i are speaking there are the terrible storms in california which um, people are quite swiftly saying is a direct consequence of man-made global warming. Effectively, we brought this on ourselves. And we've seen Ellen DeGeneres saying, Mother Nature is unhappy with us. We have to be nicer to Mother Nature. Now, she's just a celebrity in her Montecito mansion. That's how those kinds of people speak. That's how they view uh, the environment and climate change and so on. But actually, that does speak to a pretty common theme in the discussions around climate these days, which is almost that Mother Nature is sending us a sign. Mother Nature is punishing us. Some people even ascribe intention to weather. You know, they talk about it as a real sentient force. We hear about weather of mass destruction um, and other terms that are used to describe uh, uh, the weather. Isn't there a kind of pre-modern feel to some of this, this notion that in the past, bad weather might have been seen as a sign of divine displeasure with humankind, and now it's seen as a sign of nature's displeasure with industrious mankind. We've done too much, we've interfered too much. There's a kind of pre-modern, very regressive attitude, isn't there, in the way in which we talk about these kinds of weather events? Well, it's a sort of medieval morality tale, isn't it, that Mm. we've sort of we're reaping what we sowed and so on. And, um, you know, you just look at those celebrities in um, California whose gardens have been sliding into the sea and so on. I mean, just look at that coastline. Um, you can see, why are the cliffs there? Because they've suffered erosion multiple times in the past. Why is that, you know, why is the land all sort of up and down as it is? Because it suffered multiple landslides in the past. And then, you know, celebrity goes and builds mansion in that location and is then surprised when um, erosion continues and landslips continue. And (laughs) the the problem is that we sort of um, have this, uh, you know, idea of permanence. Uh, You know, we, we, you know, obviously we we, we settle land, we buy land, we sell land on this presumption that it's always going to be there. But, you know, you look at the east coast of England and now any time any bit falls into the sea, of course it's blamed on climate change. But you know that erosion's been going on for centuries and centuries. And uh, you know there's a town called Dunwich. I mean now a village called Dunwich because the rest of it fell into the sea in about you know the 16th century or something like that. It goes back that long way. I mean, I mean ten thousand years ago. Britain was under ice, you know, about two thirds of Britain was under ice. Mm. And we were connected to the um, continent by a land bridge. And also as the ice melted, the sea levels rose. And, you know, that's all within 10,000 years, uh, you know, 150 human lifetimes. It's not all that long, really. The earth does change, the climate does change. And it, in the past, it has changed on a very sometimes change of very rapid scale. The um about nine thousand six hundred years ago, something like that, the 
Earth warmed up by about seven degrees in a decade and a half. It was it was some incredibly far more rapid warming than we we have now. But you know, the sea level rise is the the biggest problem we face in Britain from rising temperatures. You know, as I said in the last ice age, the, the sea levels rose as the, uh, the, the the ice melted and cut us off from the continent and so on. Sea levels rise about three millimetres a year. Um, it's inconvenient. Um, partly because we have a lot of towns on the coast. London is a seaport. But you think, well, you know, if that is the problem, and yes, it is a problem, well, why aren't we doing more to protect our yeah. land? And you think, you know, why aren't we building barrages across the Thames Estuary and the Severn Estuary like the Dutch did in the 1930s to, you know, block off the Zuiderzee and protect Amsterdam and other cities? And, um, you know, the government sort of and activists are preaching um, Armageddon. But at the same time, governments have not putting the money and the thought into the very practical measures which can defend us. And the sort of environmentalists, they seem to have this, um, you know, belief now, coastal erosion, no, we've just got to let it happen. It's, um, it's, well, it's nature's desire to make the country smaller. We've just got to let it happen. And it's almost rude to try and intervene. Whereas, you know, we can stop that um, erosion on the East Coast very, very easily to doing what the Dutch do. What they do is they scoop up sand from about two miles offshore. They pump it onto the beaches and keep rebuilding the beaches. And, you know, that keeps the beach in good condition, stops the water coming in. If the Dutch took the same attitude towards coastal defence as we do in Britain, they'd have to abandon a quarter of their country because a quarter of their country is already below sea level. I mean, not because of climate change, but because it always was below sea level, it's been reclaimed. And um, you think, well, if you're going to spout all this um, Armageddon sort of thing, you know, why, why aren't you taking the basic defence taking coastal defence, taking river defence much more seriously than we are. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. With most providers like iTunes or Spotify, it's really easy to do with just one click. And if you get this show via YouTube, then make sure you not only subscribe to Spike's YouTube channel, but that you also click the bell so that you are alerted to every new episode. Yeah, absolutely. And I think often the apocalyptic language or the apocalyptic mindset actually grates against our willingness or our, even our ability as a society to take those kinds of steps, to take those practical measures that would defend us from some of nature's whims or, or, or floodwaters or whatever else it might be, because every all our attention is focused on the absolute calamity that is around the corner, the need to just shrink the carbon footprint as much as possible and, and basically hunker down and hope for the best. So uh, when I'm reading articles about the storms in California, for example, um, it's usually in paragraph 10 or 11 that you suddenly read something on the the weakness of water infrastructures in California and the fact that there hasn't been a great deal of investment in water infrastructure that would protect waterways from bursting their banks or stop them from flooding. But it takes a long time to get to the question of infrastructure because we're talking so much about these as these storms as payback for mankind's hubris or, or whatever else it might be. And I do think there is historical ignorance about the fact that as you say, weather has changed, climate has changed enormously over the centuries uh, and over millennia. So in California, for example, there was a funny article in the Washington Post which said um, about the drought in California, because there was before the floods, there was a terrible drought last summer. Um, and uh, this Washington Post piece said, this is the worst drought in California for 1,200 years. And then someone just pointed out, well, what caused the drought 1,200 years ago? That can't have been industrial society. That can't have been modernity. So there's a failure to recognize that severe weather events have happened always. And if anything, we're better protected from them now as a consequence of the modern society that some of these people profess to dislike. Um, I did want to ask you about 
the global tensions around the climate issue uh, and the net zero issue, uh, which you do you touch upon in the book, and they kind of came to the fore at the COP meeting in Glasgow, the the United Nations climate change discussion they have every now and then. Um, And uh, you talk about the fact that in European countries, there seems to be a great willingness to go further and further down the route of green policies, net zero, and so on. But obviously, China is not buying into it because China is still developing in a particular direction. Um, India is not particularly interested. It's got a lot of poor people to worry about. It wants to grow. It doesn't want to shrink. And America is not particularly interested either and kind of cold-shouldered some of the proposals that were being made by European countries. What do you think those differences of opinion tell us? Is it is climate change in some ways just a form of European declinism where Europe has lost faith in its own capacity to develop and progress and make society better? And, and through the language of climate change, it can kind of justify that decline in a, in a kind of dramatic fashion. Well, I think there's a very strong element of that. Um, when Britain passed its net zero commitment in 2019, We were the first major country to do so. And at the time, the idea was that um, it was going to inspire the rest of the world. We're going to take a lead, and then the rest of the world would join in. And other European countries joined in, and Sweden and Germany even set themselves tougher targets, as they would do it by 2045, even though Germany's reopening coal mines at the moment. Um, Canada and Chile, one or two other countries have also said they would put themselves under a supposed legal commitment to get to net zero. But the big emitters haven't. The countries which have made legal commitments account for about 10% of current global emissions. China has set itself an aspiration to um, achieve net zero by 2060, but it has said quite categorically that it is not going to put economic growth at risk. Um, It's investing in green energy. It's the world's biggest investor in green energy, but it's also the world's biggest investor in coal power. It wants energy. China is growing economy. It wants energy. As for the US, um, you know, the whole world is supposed to look up to the US. Um, Donald Trump was sort of roundly attacked for withdrawing from the Paris Agreement. Joe Biden was supposed to be the great sort of, you know, fresh air who's going to resume um, U.S. leadership on this issue. Um, what has he done? He's produced something called the Inflation Reduction Act, which doesn't even mention climate change in its name. And what it is, it's basically a piece of protectionism. It said, we'll give handouts to buyers of American cars, um, electric cars. Um, you know, we'll give handouts to invest in wind and solar power on one condition, all the stuff's made in America. Um, that's what America wants out of it is a protectionism. But you know, without the US and the uh, China committing themselves to uh, net zero, I mean, there would be no point to it. I mean, but China now accounts for you know nearly a third of the world's carbon emissions. I mean, partly emitted you know in making manufactured goods for the benefit of us. And America, um, you know, between them, they're nearly 40% of global emissions. And you think, well, there is no point in one country, Britain, uh, destroying its industry, impoverishing its people for the sake of cutting 1% global carbon emissions. There just is no point in that. And, um, you know, I say, and we're not even cutting them if we're just simply offshoring our emissions. So, um, I'm not against, I don't disagree with the general direction of policy where we want to go towards cleaner energy, we want to cut our carbon emissions and so on. And, um, you know, we may one day, we might get there if the, all these technologies are required to get there to become invented. But what we really should not do is put a gun against our head and say we've got to do it by 2050 because if we do, you know, we're going to cut all kinds of sort of perverse results, export our industry, impoverish our people, and all for pretty well for nothing. I've just got a couple more questions for you, Ross. The first is on 
And um, I've thought about this a lot and I can't quite work out what I think on it. But the first is about um, green hypocrisy. And this is something I've written about quite a lot and other people have too. The fact that we have, we're ruled over by eco-feudalists in some ways who constantly lecture us about our carbon footprint while living very fine lives themselves. You, You mentioned John Kerry jets around the world on a private jet, justifies it by saying that his mission is so important, so um, earth-saving that it's justifiable for him to emit more carbons than than us mere mortals. You've got Harry and Meghan, of course, who use the pulpit of Vogue magazine to lecture us plebs while taking private jets um, far more than than any of us ever do. Um, And you talked in your book, there's a very funny part in your book where you talk about Joe Biden going to COP in Glasgow and you talk about him turning up in a 21-car cavalcade and then he proceeded to sleep at the conference and you described it as surely the most carbon-intensive nap in history. Um, All of this stuff does raise the question, and this is the question you touch upon briefly at the start of your book, um, do they really believe what they're saying about the world coming to an end? Um, or don't they? Uh, or, or is the hypocrisy simply that they genuinely believe that their mission to re-educate us on matters to do with climate allows gives them permission to behave in a special way because they, they are so important to the future of humanity and the future of the planet? So how do you see, how do you explain that? The fact that we live under a, a very hypocritical elite uh, is it that they don't really believe the apocalyptic nonsense or is it that they just think they're a lot more important than us when it comes to saving the planet? I can't believe that they really think that the Earth is facing apocalypse. And I mean, you look at some of these, Barack Obama, who he just bought himself a sort of waterfront mansion in the States. Yeah. I mean, well, at the same time, he's sort of trying to preach that, um, you know, that we're all going to be drowned by climate change um yeah and you know it is astonishing it sort of um do what i say not do what i do Mm. um and i think the the other aspect of this which i find sort of really pretty disgusting is the way um the whole business of carbon offsets and how wealthy people you know will try and sort of almost buy their way out of their environmental sins by buying a few carbon offsets. And you think, you know, what's going on here? You know, rich Western businessman gets to fly, politician mm-hmm. gets to fly in their private jet, carry on as they were, um, and then pays a bit of money. And what does that money go towards? It goes towards um, things like there's a group which wants to buy up coal-fired power stations in developing countries and close them down (laughs) and uh, basically depriving developing countries of a cheap form of power. But it's dressed up as if it were, you know, some great, um, you know, philanthropic gesture towards (laughs) spending money in those countries. And, you know, you've got people just want to carry on as they were why they preach to the rest of us, but the really disgusting thing is the way they're prepared to try and impoverish the world's poor, prevent the world's poor um, developing. And you know, we were talking about sort of natural disasters earlier, which some of which may or may not be caused or made worse by climate change. Well, if you want to cope with natural disaster, it pays to be a wealthy country. And I've often brought up um, comparison of the Netherlands and Bangladesh. Both are in very vulnerable coastal locations. They both sit on deltas and with a lot of reclaimed land, shifting land and so on, great erosion from rivers and so on. Nobody in the Netherlands dies of flood. Well, it did in 1953, but you know, annually now, Netherlands is a safe country. It copes with flood. Bangladesh, not so much. You know, it still has really serious problems with um, flooding. What is the difference? The Netherlands is wealthy. Bangladesh is poor. The Netherlands can afford to build sea walls, can afford to um, shift its, um, you know, towns around, redesign its landscape to 
cope with the water. Bangladesh can't, or it's just you know starting to get into a position where it might, you know, where it is starting to think about those sort of issues. Um, if you want to improve living conditions for people in Bangladesh, you know, what do you think is going to be the most um, uh, effective way of doing it? Um, by trying to impoverish them, cut their carbon emissions, so maybe the sea might not rise quite as much as we think it will, or by allowing them to develop, allowing them to become rich, so they can then have the same sort of infrastructure as the Netherlands. And I mean, to me, you know, there's no contest. If you want to, if you want to protect yourself against flooding or any other kind of meteorological extreme. You've got to become a wealthy country. That is what, you know, sadly, we may end up depriving, the, you know, developing countries the right to become. That's a very good point. And it brings me on actually to the final question I wanted to ask you. Um, I really agree with your point about carbon offsetting. And it gave rise to some pretty grotesque situations over the past couple of decades. I wrote a piece um, a few years ago about a carbon offsetting company where you had these wealthy British people who were making donations to this company whenever they took a flight or whenever they drove too much, whenever they felt a pang of guilt about their um, carbon-emitting behavior, they'd make a donation to this charity. As rich people would do with a Catholic church in the past, they would pay money to absolve themselves of, of some of their sins. And it turned out that one of the ruses of this carbon-offsetting company was to give treadle pumps to farming families in India so that they wouldn't be tempted to use diesel-powered machinery on their farms. So you had this utterly bizarre and perverse situation where wealthy Westerners could carry on with their very nice lives because they had contributed to a situation where very poor farmers in India would do back-breaking work on treadle pumps to raise water on their farms rather than using machinery. So it, it really was almost like a, a form of eco-slavery where people over there remain poor so that we can be a little bit more virtuous about our behavior and our carbon emissions. And I, you, you make a very good point there about you know, the best way for a nation to protect itself against nature, as we know, as can be demonstrated from modern history, is by becoming a wealthy country. And I wanted to ask you how you think we can turn that aspect of the discussion around a little bit. It's always struck me as very odd that radicals in the West, just 30 or 40 years ago, their argument in relation to the third world would have been, what can we do to help those people achieve our standards of living? And now their argument is, what can we do to protect me as an individual from the destruction that will ensue if all these countries over there do the same stupid stuff that we've done and become industrialized? So you've gone from a worldview that was about assisting the poorest of the world to one that is incredibly narcissistic and self-obsessed and is about protecting us from the pollution that might accrue if other countries follow our industrial path. How can we turn that around? How can we remake the argument for greater forms of global equality, which will give people nicer lives and also allow themselves to protect themselves against nature? Yeah, it's a sort of... We, we like to look at them as sort of noble peasants, don't we? Of um, they live the lives of environmental purity, which we can't quite manage to live ourselves. But um, yeah, we've got to get back to a position where we were in the sort of fifties, sixties, seventies, when development was, you know, the outright goal. We you know, huge strides were making relieving poverty um, in developing countries. And um, reducing disease, re you know, fresh water, and so on. And as you say, we, we've lost that. And there was um, an advisor to the Indian government who, um, you know, was complaining on this very point. He said, you know, twenty years ago, development was about making lives better for ourselves. And what's it been reduced to now? It's just this one thing: reducing carbon emissions. This one target, as if. That solves problems of lack of education, lack of fresh water, hunger, poverty, and so on. And um, you think, well, the world has become a far wealthier place over the past 50 years. Some of that 
you know, wealth we, we generate in the West in the Industrial Revolution, it has spilled down into uh, developing countries. Uh, rates of hunger gone down, disease and so on. And But, you know, I, I just really feel we've lost that now. And we've really got to go back shamelessly to setting ourselves, setting, rather than carbon targets, setting ourselves targets for fresh water, for education, and particularly women and girls' education, because that's where we, where we know the world is failing at the moment, particularly in Afghanistan and places, um, you know, for eradication of disease. You know, development has got to get back to having those aims rather than just reduce it to this sort of one um, arbitrary target, which... Um, it actually is, you know, detracts from some of those other targets. That's the problem. Ross, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.